Well, I don't know about y'all, but my favorite time of year growing up uh, was always the very beginning of, of the summer. All of my summers, as I recall, were, were good, but the ones where I had plans were the most uh, wonderful. They were the best. Because if you, if you had no plans, summer was, you know, it was free time. It was more space. It was uh, time to, to go be with friends, more room, more freedom. But if you had plans, if you had big plans, say a trip with friends or maybe a summer camp or the prospect of buying your own car, then you remember this, summer was freedom itself. It was absolute manumission. It wasn't just free space, it was freedom. And one of my best summers as a kid was when I was 16. I saved up and I bought a, a plane ticket to Hawaii with my best friend who lived across the street. And I worked landscaping that summer. And at one point, I had to lay sod in uh, an airfield at an Air Force base near my hometown. Maybe that sounds interesting to you. It wasn't. Imagine the biggest field you have ever seen in your life. Like so big that the trees look like little ants on the horizon. And being asked to cover it with grass. It was like being asked to cover the Atlantic Ocean with water. I mean, it was just infinite misery. By 11 o'clock every single day, it got around 100 degrees. This is South Carolina. And you're, you're laying sod, which is basically grass, well, it's dirt with a little bit of grass attached to it. So you're covered in dirt, it's 100 degrees, and by the very end of the day, after you're just filthy, you look at what you've done, and it looks as if you have done nothing. It was awful. But you know what? The anticipation of going to Hawaii with my best buddy, I would have covered the airfield a hundred times to do it. The point is, the anticipation of going to Hawaii with my friend was so much greater than the misery of that summer job. I knew that there was glory ahead. I knew that there was something on the horizon that I would get to be a part of. And that's what we get in this week's readings, especially our first John reading that we read just a minute ago. It's an anticipation. It's an invitation into a kind of living anticipation that I think has the power not just to redirect your hopes, but to actually change how you deal with your very present circumstances. It has the power to change your life, in other words. On our epistle, John writes this. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And it's in this single verse, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that I'd like, us, like for us to focus on today because I think it shows us what it looks like to live with Easter hope in a world that still involves suffering, doesn't it? But I think many of us get to Easter, there's all of the joy, all of the celebration, but then you wake up on the Tuesday afterward and you are reminded that suffering has not gone away. The mundane tasks of everyday life are still there. And I think that this post-Easter hangover can sometimes leave us wondering, how has this first century Jewish teacher actually done anything for me in the present? 
How has his resurrection 2,000 years ago done anything for my life right now? And 1 John is all about this. Listen to how he opens his epistle. John, by the way, people say it might not have been written, but I think it was probably written by John. That's my take. So John opens his epistle with this. He's clear about his message. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy, some manuscripts say your joy, may be complete. And notice what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say that our joy or that your joy will one day be sufficient or that one day your joy will eventually be something you get to experience. He says that he's writing these things so that your joy may be complete. And I think that the way that we get to this joy is crystallized in that single verse that I just read, John 3, 2. And here's what it tells us. Here's the first thing. He tells us the immediate now reality that should shade all other components of our reality. He says this, beloved We are God's children when now. We're God's children now. And this is a theme that you probably know that gets taken up all throughout the scriptures. Uh, The Israelites are called God's children. Jesus tells us that we should become like little children. But I think what scripture is getting at here is the way that we are made to be God's children. He writes earlier in our reading, see what love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. John's talking about a reality that's present. He's talking about something that exists in your current moment. It's not some general sentiment. It's not a simple expression about human dignity or even the value of being made in God's image, though it has to do with those things. This has to do with something more, something I think that's deeper. You see, followers of Jesus, Christians, are God's children because they are purchased, they're adopted, they're brought into God's own family at a cost with objective events and actions. And that's why we slog through all of that Holy Week. We do all of those practices. We rehearse all of those actual events because they are completed events that gain us access to God the Father and life with him. Not as visitors, not as onlookers, but as sons and daughters who have claim, rightful claim, to an inheritance in his name. And that inheritance is established in the present. That's why Paul writes in Galatians, for you are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Through faith in Christ Jesus, he says, the objective events of Holy Week produce a concomitant objective reality of your own adoption. Do you see what I mean here? The events that actually happened produce something complete in your own life. Look, I, I, I realize that for plenty of people, theology often sounds like abstract speculation. I, I feel that way about theology sometimes. Don't tell my colleagues. But the truth about being a Christian, the truth about being a son or a daughter of God, is a truth not unlike other reflections in Christian theology. It is something that is accomplished and perfect and finished. It's like this. You often probably don't think about the fact that you are a human being. You're human and not something else. 
But that one detail in your life defines all other aspects of your life, doesn't it? That you're a human and not a cat, or a human and not a tree. That defines every aspect of your life. And it's true, even though you don't think about it. This truth, that when you are a Christian, you are made a son or a daughter of God, is as true as that truth. And taking hold of that very present reality is the first step to having your joy be complete. It can be complete, in other words, because it is a completed truth. In other words, you might not feel like a daughter of God, you might not always act like a daughter of God, but for Christians, there is nothing that can remove that truth about you and the future that it, inha- that it entails because it was completed in events that have already happened. So there's nothing, in other words, that can take away your joy. You have rightful claim to a complete joy because it's grounded in a completed act. It's like having a plane ticket already purchased. You're going. You already have it in your pocket. And that's the first step to having your joy be complete, accepting the, objective, the objectivity of your adoption into the family of God. The cross proves it. You have to believe it. It's happened. I could keep going. We have to keep, I have to keep going. Here's the second thing. John writes, What we will be has not yet been revealed, but what we know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him. And here's what's important to to this passage. The joy that we have, as I mentioned, is claimable now. But it's also forward-looking. And it's mysterious and dynamic. What we look forward to in Scripture, our life with God, is something that actually, it is complete, but it involves us. It involves a future for us that we don't fully know or understand. And I think for many of us, heaven or our future life with God tends to be uh, reflected on as a, as a place or a location or even an event, and all of that makes perfect sense. Jesus says, in fact, that he goes on to prepare a place for us. Uh, other portions of Scripture call our future life with God, they liken it to a banquet or a wedding feast or a city of light. It's an event or a location. But in this reading, Scripture tells us that not only does our future involve a place at the table. It involves us being suitable guests at that table. So we not only become like children of God, we become guests at God's table. We actually become children of God. Probably the best expression of this is uh, C.S. Lewis's um, The Great Divorce. It's a book that he wrote to imagine what heaven might be like. Many of you have probably read it. It's the story of a man who gets on a bus that takes him into heaven, and he gets to to come into heaven just as a visitor. And when he gets out of the bus, everything is, uh, he he can't inhabit it. So he steps out of the bus, and he steps on to the grass, and he almost can't walk because everything is too firm. It's too real. It's too substantive. And he eventually goes on to meet inhabitants who can dwell in heaven. And these people are are firm. They're more real. They're more um, there. They're more substantive. 
And they can actually dwell in heaven. They can go into the mountains. They can run. They can climb. They can enjoy the full benefits of being in the heavenly realm. And the whole point of it is, is that in order to venture into to deepest heaven, as Lewis calls it, you have to be made fit for it. You have to grow into the likeness of God to be in his kingdom. So my point is the future that we look forward to with God. It's not just about a location. It's not just about an event. It's about you becoming an intimate part of all of it. And don't you want that? Don't you want to be part of it? Don't you look at things that have glory or beauty or splendor and your heart says, I wish I could be part of it. That's the promise, is that you become a suitable inhabitant, a suitable citizen of heaven, a suitable uh, guest at God's table. It's promised to you that you get to become part of God's own life. It's not just about being somewhere, it's about becoming something. And now here's the last thing. John writes, when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. The connection here is sometimes easy to miss. But what John is saying is the way that we get transformed into God's own likeness, the way that we become suitable guests in the kingdom of God is by seeing God himself. Just by seeing him. You don't have to do something necessarily. You have to get taken into a vision of God's divine life. And that alone propels you. And of course, now I realize we don't get to see these full glimpses of God the Father. We're not there yet. We don't fully get to see him. We only get glimpses, in other words. But if you want to have the completed joy that John talks about, if you want a joy that can endure through suffering or apathy or heartbreak or tragedy, the way that you get it is you have to look at God's own life. You have to look to his glory. You have to gaze at his goodness. And you have to let it propel you forward. And I honestly don't know what that is for, for you. It could be a dozen different things. It could be uh, reveling in music and hymnody. It could be art. It could be uh, exploring the glories of the natural world. It will probably involve certain practices of prayer and scripture reading. It will certainly involve the Eucharist. But my point is, you have to, to have the glory of God set in front of you in some way, to be reminded of where you are going. And then when you do that, you have to remember that what your future entails has already been bought. It's already a completed purchase. It's already a closed event. The future that you have with life in God is complete. Some years after that first summer job that I had that was the most miserable job I've ever had, I had the second most miserable job I've ever had, which was working commercial fishing uh, in Alaska. And in my bunk, it was miserable because it was cold. and It's exactly what you would think. It was rainy and cold and you worked all the time. People weren't very friendly either. That's a side issue. But in my bunk, as I would go to sleep each night, I had a, underneath the bed above me 
series of pictures posted in front of my face. But the one that was at the very middle was of one of my best friend in Hawaii. And it kept me going. My point is nothing about Hawaii or best friends. My point is if you want to be drawn through the challenges of a post-Easter world, you have to place God's glory in front of you. You have no other option. Your life depends on it. If you want to have enduring joy based in a completed and objective act, you have to have pointers to that completed act in front of you all the time or you will forget it. No one knew this better than the Wesley brothers. Charles Wesley, the famous hymnist, had experienced a time of a a beatific vision, so to speak, where he was converted in Aldersgate in London. And he wrote about it years and years later uh, in a hymn. He writes this, Spirit of holiness, let all thy saints adore thy sacred energy and bless thy heart-renewing power. No angel tongues can tell thy love's ecstatic height, the glorious joy unspeakable, the beatific sight. The beatific sight can change you. It has the power to establish joy in your heart that is not completely satisfied but is complete. Place that in front of your eyes. Believe in it. Hope in it. And you can endure things you never thought you could. That's a great hope to me. I hope it's a hope for you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.